Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the Element Fleet Management third quarter 2021 financial and operating results conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity for analysts to ask questions. To join or rejoin the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. Element wishes to remind listeners that some of the information in today's call includes forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions that are subject to significant risks and uncertainties, and the company refers you to the cautionary statements and risk factors in its year-end and most recent MDNA, as well as its most recent AIF, for a description of these risks and uncertainties and assumptions. Although management believes that the expectations reflected in the statements are reasonable, it can give no assurance that the expectations reflected in any forward-looking statements will prove to be correct. Elements Earnings Press Release, Financial Statement, MDNA, Supplementary Information Document, Quarterly Investor Presentation, and today's call include references to non-IFRS measures, which management believes are helpful to present the company and its operations in ways that are useful to investors. A reconciliation of these non-IFRS measures to IFRS measures can be found in the MDNA. I would now like to turn the conference over to Jay Forbes, President and Chief Executive Officer of Element. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, operator. And thanks to all of you for joining me and Frank on the call this evening. We'd like to use our time with you to discuss Element's results for the third quarter and our year-end forecast, as well as the progress that we've made in advancing our strategic priorities and provide a bit of an outlook for the coming new year as well as 2023. Let me start by reflecting for a moment on the last three years as Element Net navigated the complexities of transformation and the unknowns of the pandemic. It has been this organization's ability to stay open and responsive to changing business dynamics that has served elements so well throughout this period. And it will serve us equally well as we plot our way through the unexpected challenges arising from the current industry-first vehicle supply shortage. The ability of our organization to embrace and action new opportunities, together with our ability to identify and mitigate new risks, have allowed Element to move the needle maturely over the last three years in every dimension of our business. Allow me to provide you with but a few examples. We've grown Element's global net promoter score from negative nine to a positive 26. We've achieved record high levels of client retention, including nearly 100% retention in Australia, New Zealand, and Mexico. We've improved employee engagement to 86%. We've expanded 
operating margin from 44 to 53%. We've eliminated nearly $5 billion in debt from our balance sheet, and we've improved pre-tax return on equity from 11.9% to 15.7%. By these and many other measures, our business has never performed better, nor have we been better positioned in our markets. Elements' progress in becoming a great company is evident in our third quarter, year-to-date, and full-year forecast results for 2021. Frank will take you deeper into the numbers, but at a high level, this has and continues to be another year that showcases both the resiliency of Elements' business model as well as the commitment of our people in forging ahead to deliver a consistent, superior client experience despite abnormal market conditions and often challenging practical circumstances, in particular as a consequence of COVID-19. While client demand for new vehicles and element services is robust across our footprint, OEM production delays driven by the global microchip shortage have reduced vehicle deliveries and consequently constrained origination volumes throughout 2021, particularly in the US, Canada, and Australia, New Zealand. Nonetheless, our financial and operating results remained solid. Our particularly strong service revenue growth across the business is a reflection of three fundamentals, a strengthened and reinvigorated commercial function, a deliberate focus on services as an important source of revenue growth, and the return to more normalized service consumption as client activities return to pre-pandemic levels. Growing service revenue is one of the key thrusts of Element's capital lighter business model. Compared to net financing revenues, services revenues have much lower funding requirements, only the networking capital position in respect of the services being procured. This makes service revenue, like syndication revenue, highly accretive to elements return on equity. Service offerings are even more important to our business from a client perspective. You've heard us talk about fleet management as a sticky business. While our ready access to cost-efficient capital allows us to be competitive on financing, services are the glue that creates 98% historical average client retention rates a metric that we have improved on considerably across all three regions. Services and the manner in which they are experienced by our clients are also our greatest point of competitive differentiation. We have by far the largest and broadest network of automotive service supply partners across North America. We have the deepest data sets in the automotive industry and areas of specialty like remarketing, and accident management, earnest clients that initially use Element for nothing else. It's these service capabilities that underpin our compelling value proposition of materially reducing our clients' total cost of fleet operations and eliminating related administrative burden. Indeed, our trademark consistent superior client experience is, at its heart, a service experience. Let me turn it over to Frank for a deep dive into our Q3 and forecast full year 2021 results, as well as an outlook on 2022 and 2023. Thank you, Jay, and good evening, everyone. 
I'm happy to be with you tonight to talk through our resilient third quarter and year-to-date results, as well as our forecast for this year-end and our expectations for 2022 and 2023. Let me start with a brief discussion of the quarter and year-to-date periods. All of the comparative results I'm going to reference are on a constant currency basis. Our outlooks on year-end 2022 and 2023 are also all constant currency as we don't factor any future FX hypotheses into our forecasting. Net revenue for Q3 was 4.4% higher than Q3 of last year and 7% higher year-to-date versus 2020 at Q3. We continue to demonstrate the scalability of our transformer operating platform, which magnifies net revenue growth into higher rates of adjusted operating income, or AOI growth, steadily expanding operating margins in the process. Year-to-date AOI has grown 13.9% from the same measure last year, and operating margin has expanded 200 basis points, from 51.5% to 53.5% for the first nine months of the year. After-tax AOI per share or adjusted EPS of $0.21 for Q3 was flat year-over-year, despite a materially higher effective tax rate this year. Q3 adjusted EPS was up one penny per share quarter-over-quarter. By comparison, Q3 free cash flow per share grew 17.4%, or $0.04 per share year-over-year, and was flat at $0.27 per share quarter-over-quarter. Remember that the real cash tax amounts we pay are materially less than the reported tax line item on our income statement, which is one of the reasons why we view free cash flow per share as the most important measure of Element's performance. We continue to derive benefits from advancing our capital lighter business model, which enhanced pre-tax ROE in Q3 by 180 basis points year over year and 40 basis points quarter over quarter to 15.7%, besting last quarter's record high. We syndicated 520 million of assets for the quarter and generated 13.9 million in revenue. Year to date, we are almost flat to 2020 at Q3 in terms of syndicated volume with approximately 2.1 billion, and we are technically ahead on syndication revenue, but single digit basis points behind on syndication revenue yield, which is indicative of how consistent the results are. I attended the ELFA syndication conference in San Antonio with our team a couple of weeks ago, and I have to say that the experience confirmed my beliefs, which were that our syndication capability at Element are among the most sophisticated in the vehicle leasing marketplace. We've invested heavily and wisely in this resilient source of high-quality earnings and cash flow, and I'm looking forward to our expansion of the practice into Canada and Mexico in the new year. As Jay noted, Growing services revenue is the other thrust advancing our capital lighter business model. Compared to net financing revenue, service revenues has a relatively low funding requirement, that being only the networking capital position of procured services. Services revenue performance stands out in our Q3 and year-to-date results, particularly when you control for the $8.3 million of one-time services revenue recorded in Q3 of last year. Absent that amount, services revenue grew 9.4% year-over-year for the third quarter and 3.8% year-to-date versus same period last year. We dedicate a fair amount of space in our disclosures this quarter to discussing the importance of services revenue to our business. I would highlight 
that we see a path to high single-digit annual services revenue growth in 2022 as our clients return to pre-pandemic vehicle activity levels and we continue to focus on share of wallet wins across our footprint. You can read about our early success on this front in the achievements and initiatives section of our MD&A this quarter on the first page under our clients. Last but not least of our revenue streams, net financing revenue grew 8.7 million or 8.7% year over year for Q3, despite average net earning assets decreasing 15.5% on the same basis. Net financing revenue grew 41.5 million or 14.4% for the year-to-date period compared to 2020 at Q3. This strong performance was driven by gains on the sale of used vehicles in Australia, New Zealand, and Mexico. Lower costs of funding with the significant maturation of our treasury function and smaller balance sheet, some of the benefits of a capital lighter model, and the reduction of our balance sheet allowance for credit losses. As we signaled last quarter, adjusted operating expenses were 7.8% higher this quarter than Q3 of last year and are up 2.5% year-to-date versus 2020 at Q3. Due to various accruals that occur over the course of a year and the timing of same, a last 12 months metric is much more indicative of trend and progress on operating margins. You can see 130 basis points of expansion comparing our last 12 months operating margin to that of the prior 12 months. We recorded a one-time adjustment to the short-term incentive accrual and salaries and related expenses in the quarter to reflect the outstanding performance of the business in 2021. In the face of a first ever OEM supply shortage, our people are still delivering on Element's 46% net revenue growth target, and we are returning a significant amount of cash to shareholders. The modest OPEX increase on a year-to-date basis is mostly attributable to Q3 depreciation and amortization, as several significant work and process projects came online. We anticipate DNA increasing over the next several years as we continue to bring IT investments online that allow us to deliver a consistent, superior client experience while increasing efficiencies in our operations. Before I change gears to our outlook, I want to reiterate the free cash flow per share growth that I noted earlier and speak to our return of capital strategy. Year-to-date, we have grown free cash flow per share 4.1%, or $0.03 per share, from $0.73 at Q3 2020 to 76 cents per share this year. The combination of free cash flow growth and our ability to manage tangible leverage through syndication enable us to return excess equity to common shareholders by way of growing dividends and share repurchases for cancellation. The latter, of course, enhancing elements per share performance metrics. As of October 31 this year, we have returned approximately $568 million in cash to common shareholders. 111 million in dividends and 457 million of buybacks under our NCIP. We announced a 19% increase to Elements Common Dividend today, from 26 cents to 31 cents per share annually, which is effective immediately and therefore will be reflected in the dividend to be paid in respect of Q4 2021 on January 14, 2022. With this increase, our common dividend represents approximately 30% of Elements' last 12 months free cash flow per share which is the midpoint of the 25 to 35% payout range we plan to maintain going forward. We also announced the TSX approval of our notice of intent to renew the NCIB, allowing us to continue returning cash to shareholders by way of buybacks well into 2022, 
which we intend to keep doing as we feel our common shares are undervalued as a result of the OEM production shortages and the significant net revenue, operating income, and free cash flow growth deferred in our order book. And finally, on return of capital, we intend to fully redeem Elements Series I preferred shares class when the opportunity presents itself in June of next year. Moving along to our outlook on the end of 2021 and performance in 22 and 23. Our clients' demand for vehicles has surpassed pre-pandemic levels. The month of October this year was the single largest month of U.S. and Canadian vehicle orders in Elements history, excluding Armada. The OEM's ability, inability to fill these orders has resulted in a massive backlog and created a significant deferral of revenue, operating income, and cash flow. At year-end 2021, we anticipate our order backlog to be an all-time high of between $2.5 and $2.8 billion, which is approximately $1.5 to $1.8 billion higher than our average year-end backlog of approximately $1 billion. We expect that excess backlog to represent approximately $50 million of net revenue deferred by OEM production shortages in 2021. Fortunately, and to some extent as a result of OEM production shortages, we are trending to offset this estimated $50 million deferred net revenue growth and still achieve between 4 and 5% annual net revenue growth for 2021. So within our target 4 to 6% constant currency range. Certain compensating revenue drove this growth achievement. The reduction of, in our allowance for credit losses, given the outstanding quality and performance of our asset portfolio, will have contributed approximately $9 million to net revenue in 2021. The elimination of fees and costs because we recalibrated the size of our credit facilities to better meet the needs of our clients as we advance our capital lighter business model will have contributed approximately $15 million to net revenues in 2021. An increased gain on sale or GOS earned in ANZ and Mexico due to favorable used vehicle pricing driven by OEM production shortages in those markets will have contributed approximately $30 million to our net revenue in 2021. We believe this elevated GOS performance will continue until OEM production shortages subside. These opportunities and offsets are testaments to our resilient business model through myriad market conditions. We forecast 2021 adjusted operating income of 500 to 510 million, equivalent to between 80 and 82 cents adjusted earnings per share. We forecast free cash flow per share in the dollar to a dollar two range for 2021 representing 3 to 4% growth in free cash flow per share over 2020. Operating margin will have expanded year over year in 21 to between 52 and 53%. And pre-tax return on equity will almost invariably be a record in the mid 15% range for 21 as a whole. Moving to 2022 outlook. Looking out to 2022 and 2023, I want to flag the reality that we do not have perfect information on the timeline or trajectory of OEM production volumes normalized. We've tri triangulated from multiple sources of information, including in-person meetings with our OEM partners to establish our expectations for the next two years. We deliberately express these expectations in ranges of key financial and operating metric outcomes. We will continue to report these metrics on a quarterly basis but we won't be updating the related content in this quarter supplementary or repeating it quarterly going forward unless there's a material change to our knowledge or assumptions. In 2022, 
we see a good year that will nevertheless continue to experience headwinds from OEM production shortages. We believe the year will get stronger sequentially by quarter as vehicle availability improves. We expect demand in 2022 to be sufficient to produce 5 to 6% net revenue growth. However, OEM production shortages will likely see approximately 30 to 35 million of this revenue deferred as order backlog, reducing the effective growth rate to between 1 and 3%. We provide detailed walks and commentary on our supplementary disclosure this quarter, showing how we expect each of our revenue streams, service, net financing revenue, and syndications to change from 21 to 22. Taking a moment to drill down on syndication revenue, we expect it to moderate somewhat next year as OEM production shortages continue to delay originations and vehicle deliveries. Only following delivery can a lease be activated, which creates fleet assets for potential syndication. As noted in the supplementary, we will be syndicating certain operating leases in 2022, and the revenue from those transactions will actually benefit the net financing revenue line, because accounting requires us to treat the proceeds of these operating lease syndications as gain on sale. Also, as previously disclosed, we intend to expand our syndication capabilities into Canada and Mexico in 2022, and we expect both geographies to contribute modestly to syndication revenue. More importantly, these are further steps being taken to advance our capital lighter business model, which enhances pre-tax return on equity and accelerates the velocity of cash flow, allowing for reinvestment in our business and return of capital to shareholders. Returning to our P&L at a high level, I mentioned approximately 30 to 35 million of demand-driven revenue likely being deferred as order backlog. The remaining approximately 20 million of growth revenue next year will be partially offset by approximately 10 million of adjusted operating expense growth, resulting in year-over-year -year adjusted operating income growth of between 1 and 3%. We expect to hold operating margins relatively flat next year by maintaining tight OPEX controls in this supply-constrained environment, so only depreciation and amortization is expected to grow materially, as our transformation investments in infrastructure and technology uh, continue to come online. We see some of the fruits of our capital return strategy in 2022 when we look at the AOI growth rate compared to that of the adjusted earnings per share. We expect EPS to grow between 6 and 11% next year as a function of our continued return of capital to shareholders by way of buybacks. And our free cash flow per share growth is even stronger. We anticipate free cash flow growth of 2 to 6% in 2022, but free cash flow per share growth of 8 to 13%. This is what's so compelling about our evolving capital lighter business model. It gives us the ability to return cash to shareholders through buybacks, which in turn magnifies free cash flow growth on a per share basis. Looking at 2023 outlook, with expectations of OEM production capacity back to 100% by the end of the first half of 2023, we can reasonably expect vehicle manufacturers to start clearing our excess order backlog in the U.S. and Canada shortly thereafter. For 2023 as a whole, we expect originations combined with services and syndication sufficient to grow our net revenue by 5 to 6% organically. We also expect to recover an incremental 25 to 35 million of net revenue from our order backlog, resulting in a full year net revenue growth of 8 to 10%, with significant additional deferred net revenue to be recovered from remaining excess order backlog in 2024. We anticipate achieving 10 to 16% AOI growth for 23, 
as the 8 to 10% net revenue growth is magnified into 53 to 55% operating margins atop our scalable operating platform. This AOI growth combined with our capital lighter and capital return strategies has us expecting approximately 13 to 19% adjusted EPS growth for 2022. And we expect even stronger free cash flow per share growth driven by approximately 60 to 70 million of organic free cash flow growth in 2023, combined with the initial and only partial recovery of an additional approximately 30 to 40 million of free cash flow from our order backlog. The result is 20 to 27% free cash flow growth on a per share basis with significant additional deferred free cash flow to be recovered from remaining excess order backlog in 2024. In terms of valuing the excess order backlog heading into 2024, we expect it to be sufficiently significant to bolster 2020 net rev 2024 net revenue growth beyond our 4 to 6% annual range in normal market conditions, with a growth outlook for 2024 closer to the 8 to 10% we expect in 2023. Before I turn it back to Jay, a couple of housekeeping items. First, as we have matured our business and, in particular, our balance sheet and cost of funds, we have the opportunity to modestly increase our leverage levels from a target of six times tangible leverage to one of 6.5 times, thereby further optimizing our cost of capital while staying safely within our credit rating parameters. We look at this on an FX normalized basis, and as a result, we would remain below the 6.5 times level with the current strength of the Canadian dollar. Second, I want to acknowledge the significant volume of proposed tax legislation being floated right now. You will note that we assumed a modestly higher effective tax rate on our adjusted operating income in 2022 and 2023 in our supplementary table on forward-looking adjusted EPS as part of our outlook. Given it is early going, we do not know if proposed legislation will be enacted or if the ultimate impact on our ETR will be as modest. Recall that real cash taxes amounts element pays are materially less than the reported tax line item on our income statement. For that reason, we continue to believe that free cash flow per share is a better metric than after-tax AOI per share when it comes to evaluating the underlying performance of our business. With that, I'll turn it back to Jay. Thanks, Frank. Having had the benefit of studying those 2022 and 2023 outlooks for the last several weeks, as we pressure-tested our forecasts and challenged and debated the assumptions underlying same, I've come to think of our business having a good year ahead in 2022 and a great year in store for 2023. Unquestionably, we have the right strategic priorities in place, and these priorities are well understood and warmly embraced by our 2,500 employees, such that everyone is driving on the same track in the same direction. Our momentum in growing the business is accelerating. You will see ample evidence of that throughout our disclosures this quarter. While OEM production shortages will defer the financial impacts of much of that growth until 2023, the key word here is defer. None of the benefits of our growth efforts are lost. What's more, as you will have read in my letter to our shareholders today, there are silver linings to the current circumstances which continue to evidence the remarkable resilience of this business model and its capacity to generate free cash flow through a myriad of market conditions. And while we will continue to, to strategically reinvest a small amount of that free cash flow back into 
the development and maturation of our operations and capabilities, we will be returning the lion's share of that free cash flow to our shareholders by way of growing common dividends and ongoing share buybacks. I'm now well into my fourth year with Element, and never have I been more confident regarding the future success of this company. Our commercial teams are hitting their full stride in all three regions for the very first time. Operations has never been more efficient nor more effective in their service of our clients. Finance has given us unbridled access to cost-effective capital that allows us to compete with anyone in our markets. And our people, more experienced and capable from on overcoming the challenges of the last few years, are engaged, they're collaborative, quickly disseminating best practices across our global footprint to deliver a consistent superior client experience every single day. We provided you with a great deal to chew on this quarter, so we're gonna keep our prepared remarks to this uh, and allow more time to hear from you and to take and answer your questions. So let's open the floor to those now. Operator? Certainly. We'll now begin the analyst question and answer session. In order to afford all analysts the opportunity to ask questions, Element kindly requests that analysts limit themselves to two questions in live dialogue with management. Should an analyst have additional questions, please rejoin the queue. To join or rejoin the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. You'll hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Our first question is from Jeff Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, good evening. Um, my first question was on the um, OEM kind of normalization guidance you've, you've given. Like, is there a specific data point or points that changed in the, in the past couple of months to have, you know, the meaningful change in the expected time for the production to normalize? And how would you describe the level of, of your comfort with this new timeline? Yeah, good evening, Jeff. Um, you know, as uh, we talked through in the second quarter, uh, there was a dearth of information, both sources and quantity of information that was available to us. And, and we were uh, much like the larger investor public, uh, you know, trying to aggregate the publicly disclosed information and refine it based on uh, our own knowledge of the industry to come up with some type of informed view go forward. Uh, that was proved to be very unsatisfactory. And over the course of the summary, uh, we undertook a, a series of actions to go far deeper in terms of our understanding of the root causes and their cascading effects to the OEMs and into our industry. So firstly, um, we took the conversation, um, if you will, from the trenches uh, to the executive suites of the OEMs and engaged with their executive teams uh, to better uh, understand uh, their views as to what was unfolding and in turn share uh, our needs in terms of having a greater visibility in terms of their production schedule. Secondly, we took the input from those meetings and very clear guidance in terms of production uh, timelines uh, and volumes 
as it related to the models of greatest interest to ourselves and our clients. And we undertook our own analysis uh, based on uh, best estimates of productive capacity uh, coming back online um, to full capacity um, over the ensuing months, matched that up against our understanding of our portfolio and the maturation of that portfolio uh, to develop a, a very uh, concise and, and more precise indication as to how this might all unfold by way of uh, origination volumes in the uh, next six to eight quarters. And then lastly, uh, we undertook independent research um, and again, went to the root cause, uh, the uh, semiconductor chip shortage. Uh, why? Uh, we ended up in this situation in terms of the, the cascading effects to the OEMs and, um, and achieved a better understanding in terms of both the enablers and, and blockades uh, that will, the OEMs were likely to encounter as they uh, uh, position themselves to be a bigger taker uh, of semiconductor chips um, over the next uh, year or two. And so, if you will, uh, those you know, that, that three-pronged uh, uh, deep dive uh, that we undertook allowed us to have a more informed view as to the root causes, uh, their, their effects on the OEMs, and in turn, the most likely effects that it would have on um, our originations. Uh, and the output has been shared with the investors as part of our disclosures here this evening. Thanks for that. And then my second question was, in your 2022 and 2023, um, guidance. What sort of assumption is there around new revenue units, um, wins or additions? Uh, we are very bullish, uh, as you can see by the continued success that we're having in terms of stealing share, share of all and self-managed fleets in all three regions. Uh, again, we're very bullish in terms of the underlying fundamentals of the business. Uh, our issue is not making a sale. Uh, it's not uh, converting that sale into an order. It's having that order being fulfilled uh, with the delivery of the vehicle and origination, uh, which uh, we have described for many years as being the most uh, lucrative um, part of the cycle in terms of our business. So uh, we're, we continue to remain very bullish in terms of our outlook for sales, very bullish in terms of uh, orders. As Frank uh, spoke to in his remarks, uh, October uh, was just an absolutely outstanding month in terms of record uh, order taking. Uh, in November is off to an equally bullish start. Uh, again, uh, for us, this is translating into an order backlog uh, for which we have very good, a very high level of confidence in terms of line of sight around the amount of deferred net revenue, uh, deferred operating income and free cash flow, uh, but it is deferred uh, to subsequent periods. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Our next question is from John Aiken with Barclays. Please go ahead. Good evening. First of all, um, guys, thank you very much for the detail in the deal uh, book. That's, uh, that's fantastic. I really appreciate it. Jay, um, I'm not going to argue with your, your outlook for what the uh, the OEM production is going to be. Your line of sight is obviously way better than what mine's going to be. But my, my question for you is just if there is risk of additional push out, I know you've gone to great pains to explain to us that um, the orders right now are locked in their contracts, but is there at some point uh, where that actually does break down? Like, does the contract ever break down if you, through the OEM, cannot actually produce a vehicle? Is there some time frame where this actually dissipates? And secondarily, is there any risk on the vehicle purchased in terms of inflation. So if the vehicle delivery is 12, 18 months out now, and presumably the cost of cars are gonna be a lot higher at that stage, at that stage is there any risk on, uh, on your income statement? Yeah, uh, good evening, John. Uh, so firstly, uh, when we think about the, uh, the chain of obligation here, when a client places an order with element and element in turn places that order with an OEM. Uh, upon acceptance of that order by the OEM, we have effectively created a chain of obligation. We are legally obligated to uh, execute that order, pay for the uh, vehicle upon its delivery to us, and in turn, uh, coincident to that, the client is obligated, legally obligated. Uh, to pay for that vehicle uh, upon uh, receipt. So we have a, a, again, a legal obligation that uh, takes effect upon acceptance of these orders by the OEMs. Secondly, we have a very practical consideration. The OEMs want the sale. They want to produce this vehicle, fulfill the order, deliver that vehicle, and record the sale. At the same time, the client needs that vehicle. It's either replacing a vehicle that is long in the tooth, well before, well beyond the best before date, or is in need to facilitate the growth uh, objectives. So, for instance, uh, one of the clients I was talking to in the last two weeks needs 500 new Malibus for an expansion of their uh, uh, sales force. Uh, and those are additive vehicles. Uh, the orders will be placed uh, and they will be anxiously awaiting their arrival. So legally, there is an obligation that sees this fulfilled regardless of the timeline it takes to fulfill it. And practically, the longer this goes, the more eager uh, the client is to have that vehicle because either they are uh, paying a much 
higher operating costs to utilize their existing vehicle, or they're paying even higher costs in the form of a long-term rental uh, from us to provide their workforce so they're able to visit their clients as salespeople or service their clients as service personnel. So that is the, the legal and practical um, ties that, that bind uh, this uh, chain of obligations together, if you will, um, and it, see, it looks through the timeline. Um, and, and remember, you know, for, you know, while this is not exactly uh, first in, first out, uh, there is a precedent, so the earlier orders are getting fulfilled, generally speaking, um, earlier than the later orders. And so um, even though we're looking out to uh, 2023 before the backlog uh, is, uh, begins to be cleared, um, you know, uh, Q1's backlog is being cleared as we speak, um, and Q2's will be clearing as we speak and into the next quarter, et cetera. So the, the timeline for this isn't 18 or 24 months uh, from date of order to date of receipt of a vehicle. And then lastly, in terms of the inflationary piece of this, uh, again, uh, we are protected from that. Uh, you know, the, 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 the client uh, understands the pricing, understands the ability for that price to shift and assumes uh, obligation in terms of that price. And, you know, we are seeing uh, increases in model year pricing. So the 22 model year in general has gone up 2% with select models in the high single-digit levels of uh, inflation. And for us, you know, as we've talked before, inflation is a friend. It's uh, additive in terms of net finance revenue. It's additive in terms of syndication revenue. Uh, and over time, it's quite additive from a service revenue point of view as well. That's great, Jay. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll requeue. Thank you. Our next question is from Paul Golden with CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. Uh, good evening. So first question for you is related to your 2021 guidance. And again, I would echo um, the appreciation for the, all the additional details you've given us in the guidance. But the 2021 guidance of 80 to 82 cents in EPS compares to 63 cents year to date and so implies you know, 17 to 19 cents for Q4 and just wondering what's kind of driving the expect expectation for a sequential decline in uh, in Q4 earnings? Sure. Um, this is Frank. So when we look at it, think back to the summer um, and the summer when most of the OEMs had production, uh, the, the weakest production that they have seen in a long time with many, many of the facilities closed for the chip shortages and the like. Uh, those vehicles that would have been manufactured in the summer would likely be the vehicles that would be originating in Q4. And so as a result, Q4 originations will likely be uh, lighter than we've seen um, in the first three quarters. Uh, and hence, the flow through of those lighter originations will, uh, will impact the quarter. Um, service revenues, other revenues should be in line. Uh, but the, or, the origination component of that uh, is likely to drive a weaker quarter uh, than the uh, on a sequential basis. Understood. Okay, not a completely surprising answer, but we had to ask. So thank you for that. Um, 
<clears throat> Another question, I guess, is with respect to the quarter and also how it incorporates into, into forward guidance is this increase in the short-term incentive payment. So just wondering specifically what performance metrics drove the incentive payments this quarter and what is the risk that similar incentive payments result in, um, you know, lower, maybe lower EPS guidance than what you've uh, embedded in uh, in your forward outlook? Sure. So uh, in regards to the incentives, given the lack of visibility on the OEM production shortages through the first half of the year, um, we were accruing our uh, bonus incentives at, at target um, for that. Um, as we continue to focus on both the financial metrics and the other meaningful components in our balanced scorecard, which drives our short-term incentive plans, um, we are seeing outperformance. And as we got through Q3, it was clear to us that that outperformance was going to manifest itself uh, in more than tar a higher than target payout uh, in regards to that short-term incentive uh, payments um, from that perspective. And think about um, you know, the, the lack of uh, clarity around the market as the OEM production shortfalls were playing out. And the fact that in the face of that, from a financial perspective, we are generating 4 to 6% net revenue growth. We are scaling the platform. Uh, and many of the things that we talk about as strategic priorities, client satisfaction, net promoter scores, uh, and the like, all of those uh, have been performing well for the year. And that's what caused that increase. Um, in Q4, I would not anticipate uh, another um, material change to that up or down. Um, so I think that, you know, that would not be something that uh, concerns me in regards to volatility around the earnings profile for, for the fourth quarter. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Our next question is from Jamie Gloin with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Good evening. <clears throat> Um, my question is uh, looking at uh, the, the compensating AOI and non-recurring items uh, in 2021, uh, clearly beneficial for this year. Um, I, I would think that as we go through a normalization process, this reverses in future years, but I don't see that in the, uh, in the walkthroughs on any of the, the guidance. So I'm just wondering if that is embedded somewhere else that, uh, that we can't see and how you're yeah. thinking about those revenue drivers in those future years. Yeah. So think about the gain on sale component, which is the largest component of those um, drivers, right? And if we continue to see OEM production shortfalls uh, through the first half of 2023, and then still not eating through the full backlog in 2023, uh, we remain bullish on the outlook for gain on sale and used vehicle prices. Um, as that moves forward through the, the remainder of the both 2021 and the forecast period. So you don't see it because it's in the base. Similar to many of the uh, uh, financing benefits that we got uh, as far as the reduction in the balance sheet uh, and the uh, uh, optimization of our capital structure, again, stays in the base. So because it's in the base and we're not looking at a material change, um, those numbers just kind of carry forward uh, as that base for base piece through that forecast period. 
Okay, great, thank you. Our next question is from Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much for taking my question here. Um, just with respect to your um, detailed investigation in terms of uh, OEM delays, um, from what I understand, when you order a vehicle, it's really the time between ordering a vehicle and getting the vehicle produced by the OEM. That's the biggest delay that you're seeing right now, correct? And that's caused most of this uh, push out in terms of earnings. Um, what have you seen in terms of um, the time it takes really before you pay, between when you pay an OEM and then you actually get the lease activated? Um, that can take some time. There's vehicle delivery time. There's uh, vehicle upfitting time. Um, what are you seeing with respect to that trend, and has that uh, has any change in that trend been reflected in your uh, um, push out of your guidance? Thanks. Yeah. Good evening, Tom. Uh, this is essentially all attributable to uh, the delay in uh, order to origination uh, cycle time with the OEMs. Uh, we're not seeing any material elongation of the cycle times in terms of delivery, upfitting, um, and ultimately lease activation. Um, you know, there's all kinds of capacity in the pipeline, uh, given the inability of, for the OEMs to produce that volume. But now this is all attributable to the elongation in the cycle time between order and origination with the OEMs. So no issues in terms of labor for upfitting or any kind of parts needed for upfitting or uh, no, not uh, running into to any issues. No, no issues in terms of labor or materials in terms of upfitting. Uh, inflationary uh, pressures. Uh, it is costing more than uh, the price points, uh, you know, six twelve months ago. Uh, but no, there's no bottlenecking in terms of. Uh, constraints on either labor or materials. Okay, thanks. And just as a quick follow-up, can you talk about the backlog? Now, um, how does the backlog look versus um, what you may have traditionally been getting in terms of orders? It, it, is, is, it more, is there anything in terms of the self-managed market that's in this backlog? Are the, uh, um, is the backlog have any kind of additional services that uh, um, customers might be taking that they weren't taking in the past? Yeah, so this order backlog, Tom, um, would be, uh, you know, just to dimension it for you, at, at $2 billion, um, growing to anticipated $2.5 to $2.8 billion by year end, we would anticipate that this would be, you know, a billion and a half, billion eight above our normal backlog uh, at year end. So, we, you know, we always have a... a uh, uh, you know, orders that we have taken placed on behalf of our clients uh, with the OEMs that are waiting uh, production and delivery. We always have some backlog, uh, but we're running at multiples of historic backlog. Uh, and, and again, at year end, we anticipate that to be roughly a billion and a half, billion eight of order backlog. That backlog would be for uh, vehicles. Uh, in, in Canada, the U.S., uh, to a lesser extent, uh, ANZ and Mexico. And uh, it would be across the full continuum 
of our client base. So we're not seeing any particular concentration in one industry, uh, but instead uh, across the entirety of our client base. And further, obviously, with the uh, you know the viewpoint that we have into each and every client's uh, fleet, um, you're not we're not seeing any order stuffing in the channel, if you will. Uh, the orders that are being placed are for vehicles that are needed to either replace a vehicle that is coming off lease, replace a vehicle that has been uh, you know damaged and taken off road by virtue of an accident or vehicle that is in need uh, to fulfill the growth mandate of our clients. So these are bona fide orders, uh, orders that are anxiously being anticipated uh, by uh, our clients and, and well distributed across the full continuum of our client set. And uh, are there any of those orders associated with the self-managed market? Or, or more than you would have seen in the past? Or is it just the constant, the makeup of that is just generally the same as what you've seen in the past? Yeah, just no, generally no. your client. Yeah, we've, in, you know, we've had some success with our self-managed fleets in terms of, uh, of sale leaseback. So to the extent that we have uh, uh, purchased those, those uh, assets and brought them on book, uh, obviously uh, you know, there hasn't been a cycle of replacement for those. Uh, but indeed, there are, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, population of clients uh, constituting that order backlog would indeed uh, include new uh, recent uh, self-managed fleet wins in all three uh, regions. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good evening. Um, can we just start with the originations outlook for 2023? Um, it, it's a big, it's a big improvement, and I understand the underlying assumptions that would drive uh, looks like about a 40% increase in 2023 relative to 2022. What surprised me a little bit is with the origination growth uh, assumed to be that high that we wouldn't see a little bit more on the revenue on the revenue side that your revenue outlook well well certainly better seems a bit light relative to the origination growth you're assuming are you sort of building in a little conservatism into your revenue outlook um, particularly in the context of this origination growth you're speaking of yeah mario um what i'd say is that when you think about 2023, remember we said that it doesn't start to recover the order backlog until the second half of the year. So you've got a much heavier weighting in the second half of the year, so you're not getting the full run rate on that normalized production plus, plus the backlog eating through. And so that's probably why you're, you're seeing when you look at it, doesn't look as big as it should be because it's not annual, it's neither annualized nor beginning at the beginning of the year, it's that that recovery is um, much heavier in the second half. Okay, I think that that does go a long way toward explaining to me. One other quick question here on the origination outlook: um, Could you help us think through what activations could be like relative to their originations? I, I don't want to pin you down too much on this, but would it be appropriate to assume that on a quarterly basis, activations might run? A couple of hundred million dollars light of where originations are. Yeah, there, there would definitely be a 
uh, time delay. So, so again, if we step back uh, for a second and just uh, you know, level set everyone in terms of fleet. So uh, of our portfolio, 80-20 service sales vehicles, of the 80% service, rough, 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 uh, you know, 60% of those are upfitted. And so to the extent that you are uh, taking a origination a delivered uh, vehicle from the OEM and then getting it upfitted before it's delivered to the client, yes, there will be a delay between the uh, origination and the activation of the, the lease in terms of that uh, fully upfitted vehicle. And, you know, in, in, in terms of quantification, you know, think about it more, you know, as opposed to maybe on a monetary basis, think about it on a timeline basis, 30 to 60 days. Okay. Now, wouldn't there also be a difference in originations and activations related specifically to Armada orders? Is that still a dynamic you would highlight for us? Yes. Okay. And then finally, uh, you may have addressed this uh, when Paul asked the question, but you'll recall that last year, Q4 20, there was a, a fairly meaningful amount of share-based comp. Um, should we assume that a similar true-up could happen this quarter, or was that more specific to last year? We're not we're not expecting that to happen. That was more specific to a significant outperformance of uh, the 2019 plan, um, and right now we don't expect that type of outperformance in any of the other plans. Okay, and just sir, one final one while I've got you there, Jay. The company went through an important transformation in in the last the first few years in your tenure. Do you see any need going into 2022? Um, with these OEM delays for maybe another, uh, maybe right-sizing of the organization or a restructuring? Or do you really see this as so fleeting, pardon the pun, but so fleeting that really it would be too drastic to make any changes transforma transformational or, or already kind of restructuring uh, of the organization? Well, Mary, one of the great legacies of the transformation has just been a mindset and a capability that we introduced into the organization of continuous improvement and constantly challenging um, why we do things, why we do it that way, um, and in turn, how we might be able to uh, improve the effectiveness and or efficiency of the different business processes that support uh, the client experience. And and suffice it to say that, you know, we have this kind of uh, com competing uh, set of uh, priorities that, you know, uh, we want to stay the course strategically. So when we think about the organic growth, the top of scalable platform, uh, the ability to uh, convert operating income gains into free cash flow for distribution to our shareholders, that strategy is proving out on every dimension of our balance scorecard. So we want to hold uh, to that strategy um, and stay true to it through 2022, even though we are going to be constrained by uh, vehicle deliveries from the OEMs. At the same time, you want to deliver a fair rate of return to the shareholders. You want to continue to test uh, the model and the resiliency of the model. And that's the, that, that, that is the uh, you know, uh, 
bit of stress, if you will, that we've introduced into our three-year planning process, and in, and in particularly in respect to 2022. We want to strategically stay the course, but short-term, uh, we want to continue to evolve uh, our means of doing business to ensure that they are, uh, you know, the most efficient, the most effective, and you know, our you see that in our commitment to uh, hold to in 2022 an operating margin of you know mid uh, 53 percent, um, even uh, against a, a modest uh, top line growth and the attendant benefits that flow through to both EPS and free cash flow growth. So that's the tension that we, we introduced into the business as we embarked upon our three-year planning. Uh, how do we stay true uh, to what we know and are proving is the right strategy for the organization long-term uh, while we continue to deliver uh, you know, an acceptable level of performance short-term uh, for our investors? So, Jay, does that mean it's, it's not likely there would be another uh, restructuring or transformation? No, no. Um, instead, this will be, you know, uh, yet another year of continuous improvement. Uh, we're, again, we examine the underlying processes and systems that support the business and look for uh, additional areas for efficiency. So, no, we have transformed the business. The business, again, uh, you know, be it net. Uh, promoter score, employee engagement, uh, operational effectiveness, uh, you know, we're, the team is just shooting the lights out operationally. It really is quite incredible to see all of the time and investment of the last three years uh, take hold in terms of concrete uh, improvements in the operational performance of the business. So we know we have something very special here, and so it's about uh, continuing to evolve it and refine it um, to ensure that, again, uh, it yields the necessary efficiencies that allow us to meet the objectives that we've set in terms of the financial guidance for 2022. Thank you very much. Appreciate your help. Not at all. Thank you. Our next question is from Jeff Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. I just had a, a follow-up um, from one of Tom's questions earlier. Is, is In the discussions you've had with the OEMs that when you fast forward to 2023, is their plan on production going back to full production as they would kind of under normal economic conditions? Or are they looking to do, um, you know, higher levels of productions, for example, adding extra shift? Because I'm just wondering if there's implications for um, any sort of capacity issues from the transportation logistics uh, network as well as the upfitters. Yeah, very much the latter, Jeff. Um, you know, as they step back and and again, you could appreciate the uh, FMC marketplace is near and dear to their heart. Uh, when you think about the the volumes that we transact with them, when you think about the uh, predictability of the order volumes, um, the the fact that uh, in the U.S. the vast majority of the uh, vehicles we originate are ordered with the factory, and so they can plan their production well in advance. We're a very attractive segment for them, and the vehicles that our clients use are very attractive vehicles in terms of uh, both price point and, and profitability. And so, you know, they will be, uh, they will have a strong bias 
to ramp up production of these types of vehicles for these types of clients um, fast and uh, where possible add additional capacity um, so that they can uh, you know, be producing well beyond the 100% and start chewing through this backlog, recognizing the, the guaranteed nature of it for their own revenue and profitability. Um, and then as you kind of then uh, look at how that might in turn translate into uh, pressures along the, uh, uh, the transportation and upfitting, I'll just point you back to Armada. So in 2019, we took Armada on as a new client. They placed the single largest vehicle order in the history of uh, FMC uh, industry. Uh, and uh, we worked with our cha uh, supply chain to ensure that each and every one of those vehicles was properly upfitted and delivered on time to that client. So no, the, the, the again, you know, 55,000 service you, uh, uh, dealers, uh, you know, 7,000 auto body shops, countless uh, transportation uh, facilities, hundreds of upfitters. We have a very, very extensive network that will allow us indeed to uh, move that pig through the python with a relative degree of ease. Okay, great. Thank you. Once again, any analysts who have a question may press star then one. Our next question is from Jamie Goyne with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Just wanted to uh, follow up on uh, the service services revenue walk for 21 to 2022, um, looking at maintenance, registration, tolls, violations, fuel, and other services being the largest uh, step up. Um, first, how much is a... How much of the, the current fuel price environment is, is baked into that forecast? And then the second piece is, uh, is the ANZ Mexico market, which is the second largest part of that walk. Um, you know, how much of that is, is driven by uh, return to normal activity versus uh, clients that have been added at the end of 2021 and, and through 2022? Jamie, happy to, to step through it. I'm looking at uh, page 12 of the supplementary information document uh, where we do indeed provide the walk from uh, 2021 forecast to 2022 uh, ex expected. Um, you know, as Frank has highlighted in his comments, um, you know, as we think about year over year, um, you know, we delivered 9.4% on a kind of normalized cost of currency basis in terms of service revenue. So you're already beginning to see a lot of the drivers that are represented here in this walk in the results uh, in Q3. Um, you know, as we look at this remarketing, you know, with an expectation that we're going to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 18% growth in originations, that will in turn give rise to remarketing opportunities, the opportunity to take that vehicle that is being replaced and sell it on behalf of the client generating the associated fees. So that will be the kind of a, a first meaningful step up in terms of year-over-year -year service revenue. Um, we are seeing a lot of demand for accidents, long-term rental, and telematics, and in part because of these shortages. You know, our clients can ill afford to have a vehicle written off and taken out of service because there is no vehicle to replace it. Uh, 
in the event that that happens or a uh, client needs to add personnel, then they uh, work with us uh, for us to in turn secure long-term rentals for them. Where short-term rentals think days to weeks, um, long-term rentals think weeks to months. And these are vehicles that we uh, procure on their behalf with rental agencies at kind of front of the line discounted pricing uh, to provide them with short-term capacity. Um, and again, given the vehicle shortages uh, that we're seeing and continue to see, uh, that will be a source of revenue growth. And lastly, telematics and, and again, better understanding the deployment of the fleet um, given the limitations of, uh, of adding to that fleet by virtue of the shortages. The maintenance, registration, tolls, violations, fuel, and other services, yep, they're inherent in that is an inflationary component for sure. Um, the bigger driver is the uh, full year's return to normal consumption levels, pre-pandemic consumption levels. That's, that's what's really, if you will, fueling um, that aspect of the revenue walk. And then lastly, an ANZ in Mexico. Uh, remember, uh, you know, uh, both of those operations were effectively carve-outs of GE Financial, and, and as a consequence, both of those business units had a very financial orientation. Um, as you know, we have reinvigorated the commercial function, as we have shared best practices, uh, both of those entities have just done a fantastic job of introducing more and more services, maintenance, fuel, registration, et cetera, into their respective marketplaces and are growing uh, services at double, if not triple, uh, percentage rates year over year. And so we would expect that increased share wallet growth in both uh, Australia and New Zealand, as well as Mexico, as the other contributor to the walk that we're seeing here. So we're very bullish on service revenue, and, and, and in turn, uh, you know, uh, service and syndication are the two big drivers behind that capital light business model. And so with the success that we would anticipate with service revenue growth, in turn comes a, a progression in terms of our, our return on equity or progression in terms of our, our free cash flow per share. Okay, got it, good color. And then uh, just like with a super quick answer, um, as part of the, the the 21 to 23 outlook, I, I presume that leverage will remain at six times or under, yes? Uh, as Frank has uh, indicated, we've made a great uh, progress in reducing the operational, the financial, uh, and credit risk of the business through uh, the transformation program. And as such, we've actually been able to move the organization in terms of the efficient frontier and you know our target leverage in terms of maximizing our WAC. So where six times was appropriate for the profile of the organization when we started that journey uh, back in late 2018, uh, again, the maturation of our risk management programs, the decrease in leverage, the operational sophistication, uh, et cetera, has, uh, and the, I should say the program, performance of the portfolio through a very uh, stressful period, um, you know, has allowed us to uh, take that tangible leverage target to 6.5 times. And again, that's on the basis of a 1.31 FX rate. 
Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. As there are no further questions registered, this concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.